What is up, New Journey? Grab those Bibles or devices. I'm pretty hot up here, guys. And I don't mean in that way. Just my mic is hot. <laughs> Grab those Bibles or devices. Open them up to uh, Judges chapter 8 as we look today at curses and the cross from Gideon's end and Abimelech's beginning. One of the uh, historians, uh, newspaper people, journalists, they, they all noted uh, really a tragic but sad um, but also kind of interesting phenomenon and pattern in presidential deaths that started with William Henry Harrison and ended with John F. Kennedy. Uh, it just so happened that every 20 years, the United States of America elected a president who died in office. Uh, Harrison was the first president to die in office. He was elected in 1840 and in sort of in succession, Lincoln was elected in 1860, then James A. Garfield, William McKinley, uh, uh, Warren G. Harding in 1920, and then FDR in 1940, and JFK in 1960. And interestingly enough, uh, even Ronald Reagan, who was elected in 1980, was shot. Someone tried to assassinate and kill him in office, and of course, he was able to survive. Uh, but just sort of an interesting phenomenon. Every 20 years, the United States of America elected a president who happened to die in office. Now, some claim this pattern was no uh, mere accident, but rather it was due to a curse that was put on William Henry Harrison by a uh, famous Shawnee Indian chief named Tecumseh, and that Tecumseh put this curse on Harrison and all future presidents as a result of Harrison's troops defeating Tecumseh at the Battle of Tippecanoe in 1811. Uh, the story likely originated with non-Native Americans, this was not something that, non, uh, that Native Americans perpetuated, but rather uh, probably, if I could just be blunt and just say probably white people, right? And it is similar to uh, the other quote-unquote curses uh, that we have made up that are related to things like disturbing Native American burial grounds and things like this. It likely caught on and has sort of uh, stood the test of time, not because it's true, but because as the fictional Wamapo chief Ken Hote said in Parks and Recreation, there are two things I know about white people. They love Rachel Ray, and they are terrified of curses, right? Uh, today, we will talk about curses, right? That's where all this is coming from. We'll talk about curses, uh, and more importantly than the curse that we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about the cross that removes the curse that we are all born under as sinners. So join me there in Judges chapter 8. Uh, we'll read quite a few sections or quite a few verses, and then we'll come back and make some observations as we go. Join me there. Judges chapter 8, starting in verse 29. Jerubbabel, that would be Gideon, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Oprah, of the Abizarites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. The people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is, Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, Which is better for you, 
that all the 70 sons of Jerubbabel rule over you or that one rule over you. Remember also, I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Belbereth with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house in Oprah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance, by which gods and men are honored, and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit, and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, You come, reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, a briar, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore... If you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt with Jerubbabel and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you have then acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbabel and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. A lot going on there. Let's see if we can start to kind of unpack it. And let's start with what I would call calm and curses. And I think we make a mistake sometimes where we assume that if things in our life are calm, that must mean that things are good, right? Or we might want to note that just because things are not all bad, that doesn't mean they're all good with us or with God. Uh, in the text, Gideon dies, and the first thing Israel does is return to their habitual wicked ways. We've noted it a few times. It's worth saying again that in, in the book of Judges, this is the repeating pattern, but just because it's a repeating pattern, it does not make it a cycle. Uh, Israel is not caught in a cycle of struggling with sin and then returning to God in repentance. That's not what's happening. We call that being a Christian. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Even Christians struggle with sin. And even Christians, some days, let's be honest, sin wins. Sin wins the battle some days. Never in a final sense, 
Never in a final sense because that's been determined by Jesus Christ. Never in a final sense where sin gets to decide what happens to us tomorrow or for all of eternity. But for a Christian, sometimes sin wins what I would call today's round. When that happens, what do we do? We repent, right? We confess, we repent, we return to Christ, and he welcomes us and he embraces us as his friends and his family who he has saved and forgiven and redeemed through his work on the cross and in the resurrection, right? That's what, a, that's what the life of a Christian is. The Christian life is one of daily habitual repentance, right? But this is not where Israel is. Not in the book of Judges, generally, or in, the book, or in Judges chapter 8 specifically. Israel is not in a cycle, but they are in a crashing descent downward. They are headed away from God. But likely because of the 40 years of rest that came after Gideon had defeated the, the, the enemy of Midian, they likely thought everything was okay. Right? They're headed away from God, but they think everything's okay because things aren't so bad. Life was okay for them. And the okayness of life, the calmness of their lives made them numb to the true state of, their, of the condition of their hearts and their souls before God. They had 40 years of rest after Gideon died. But the question is, what was happening during these 40 years? Right? It may have been a time of rest, but was it a time of revival? I think not because of what happens immediately after Gideon dies. And this is what Israel has done with each of the judges while the judge lived, they would chill out. They would do what I would call press pause, not stop, but pause on the hedonism, paganism, and pragmatism. But the rest that they experienced was never final. It was only paused. And as soon as the judge that had delivered them would die, their descent away from God was free to resume. Uh, their rest, if you will, was tied up with the life of the judge, right? Now, this is good news for those of us uh, who know that Jesus Christ has come, right? Because our eternal rest is tied up with the life of our judge as well, but he has risen from the grave. He lives forevermore, so that means the rest he provides lasts forevermore, right? But for Israel, they didn't have this luxury. Their rest was tied up with the life of the judge, and when the life of the judge ended, so did their rest. Because as soon as the judge died, they would return to what it was they had wanted to be doing in their hearts all along. What they would do is the text tells us they would get rid of God and they would replace him with some deity or some ideology that was less demanding, less offensive, less, uh, less intrusive than the God of the Bible, the God of the Jews who wanted to be all up in their business all the time, telling them what it was that they should be doing, what it was they should be loving, what it was that they should approve of, and etc. The truth is, here's what Israel wanted. They wanted peace, but they didn't want God. They wanted calm, but they didn't want Christ. They just wished God would leave them alone. And they, they had to imagine, I, I think as I read through the book of Judges, I'm just trying to understand the mindset of Israel. It, it almost seems like for them, and I think as a Christian, sometimes if we're in our honest moments, we would say this, life would be so much easier and less complicated in a way if we were not God's chosen people. <laughs> right? But man, God will not leave us alone, even when we wish he would. We're made in his image. We're made to worship him, him alone. He will not share us with anything or anyone else. Beyond that, he dares to actually tell us 
that he alone knows what is right and wrong, period, and what is right and wrong for us. And we don't have permission to decide this for ourselves or to put our own twist on it to fit a more modern time period. He is an offensive God because he, he dares say there is one way to him and it is the way that he has decided and the way that he has provided Jesus Christ. He's narrow-minded in that sense and he's not a very inclusive God because he doesn't care about the feelings and thoughts of others, about who he is and how it is that we come to know him. God is in our way. He is in our way very often. We want heaven but not Christ. We want to gain it all and it to cost us nothing. But as Martin Luther once said, a religion that asks nothing and costs nothing is probably worth nothing. Our world, our world um, that we live in, I see so many similarities between our world and the world of judges. Our world is over God. We're over this. The, the, the time for all this has passed. We're more modern people. I heard that over and over again witnessing on the streets of New Orleans this week. We need something that fits our more modern context. Our world is over God as Israel was over God. And as America plunges deeper into what I would call the abyss of pragmatism and relativism and just do you and YOLO and speak your truth, it just it makes me think of what is happening here with Israel and with Gideon. And the text is clear. like It says as soon as Gideon died, like the writer, the author of Judges goes to, to special... Um, like links to make sure we know that this is as soon as Gideon died. It was almost as if they were counting down the days to Gideon died so that they could get back to their wicked ways. And look, man, we're not here to uphold the American flag today, but as I kind of look out over the landscape of our country, um, as I would kind of characterize it, our grandfather's generation, my grandfather's generation, the, the World War II, the Korean War generation, as they begin to pass away from the landscape, it's almost as if we think, man, finally we're free to begin our free fall away from God and there's nobody around to nag us that this is not what they fought for us to have, for, for us to believe, for us to promote. And Israel, and uh, the, the author here goes to great lengths to tell us that Israel um, cheapened what Gideon did. They insulted the sacrifice that Gideon made. And the truth is, as Christians, we often cheapen what God did in delivering us. So let's now talk for a few minutes about cheapening the cross. And we need to note that to walk in sin with no regard for God is insulting to God and insulting to the sacrifice that he has made to set us free from our sin. Um, when a man's wife dies and he's married in Vegas the next weekend, we grow suspicious. Right? Not just that he may have had a hand in her death, but we assume that he likely was not faithful to her while she was still alive. Right? That as soon as she was gone, he was free to really do what was in his heart to do all alone. Right? It's important to note here that Israel didn't love God any more uh, before Gideon died than after. <laughs> Right? It's just with Gideon out of the way, they were free to bring free expression, full expression to what was in their hearts, what was on the inside of them all along. Gideon dies and they are over Gideon and they are over God. God saved them via Gideon. This is important to know. We talked last week about the complexity of Gideon. He's a hero that's not always easy to root for. His end is nowhere near as good as his beginning. But God had chosen to save Israel via 
Gideon and the things that God and Gideon got was to be forsook and forgotten as soon as the opportunity presented itself. This return of Israel to false worship, worship of what is untrue, is a slap in the face of not only God but Gideon too. Right? It insults God and it cheapens the risk that Gideon had undertook as God's chosen appointed Savior. And friends, to walk in sin with no remorse for it, no sense of its seriousness, no hatred of it. It is an insult to God and it cheapens the cross. And I want to say this once again, that being a Christian is not evidenced by a lack of struggle with sin. I would argue it's actually the opposite, that a Christian is a person who is struggling with sin rather than surrendering to it, <laughs> right? Like, to be a Christian means you enter into a battle with your sin and your flesh and your desires, but the person who is not a Christian, they have no reason to wage that battle. Why would they care if they sin? And very often the response you hear is, it ain't hurting anybody but me. So why should anybody else care? The church is not full of people who are perfect and put together, but people who have come to the place where they are not perfect and put together and freely confess that they are not. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the church is actually the one place in the world where a prerequisite for entrance is not you telling us of your awesomeness, but rather your admission of your lack thereof. <laughs> right? Christians know they are sinners. They know they are sinners and they confess it but they don't minimize their sin, right? Rather than saying, what's the big deal? They turn to Jesus to deal with it, to forgive them of it, and to free them of both its eternal consequences and its earthly control. They look to the cross, right? And while we will never fully, I don't think even on the other side of eternity, ever really fully grasp the fullness, the totality of the price that was paid there by Christ, we see Jesus hanging there and we begin to grasp some semblance of it. And rather than see the cross as cheap, we see it as valuable and precious because it is the means of our redemption and our reconciliation to God. We see the cross as an, un, an unmerited gift of God's grace. We don't see it as something small and cheap, but big and priceless. And those who truly know Jesus Christ, we want the rest of the world to see it as valuable and precious as well. And if nothing else, maybe more than that, we want the world to see the value and the worthiness of the one who hung there. So the question, or really the statement is this, that we will either cherish the cross or we will cheapen it. We really don't have anything in between those two. We'll either cherish the cross or we'll cheapen it. Let me see if I can give you an illustration. If I gave you a new Corvette, no strings attached, would you go mud riding in it? Right? Would you throw your fast food wrappers in the floorboard? Would you spray paint uh, the logo of your favorite team on the hood? No, man. You'd wash it every day, right? You'd park it seven miles from the nearest car at Walmart to avoid it being dinged by some random shopping cart on the loose, right? You would threaten to cut off from your life permanently anyone who even dared to open a gum wrapper inside of it, right? You would cherish the gift. And you would do everything in your power to keep it looking pristine 
and so fresh and so clean, clean. Sin, <laughs> sin is throwing your trash at the foot of the cross and not in the good way. Sin is spray painting blasphemous graffiti on the cross. Walking in sin with no sense of repentance, no sense of struggle. Here's what it says to Jesus. Thank you for dying for the sin that I so clearly love more than I love you. When you sin, not just sin, but when you live in sin and live in it unrepentantly, no struggle, no remorse, no hatred of it, no grinding it out. When you do that, are you not saying that you prefer your sin to Jesus? Are you not saying that you are not willing to suffer living without your sin for the glory and the honor of the one who suffered and died so that you could die to it and come to life in him? Friends, like in my illustration, everybody laughed and giggled because you know the truth. We, truth, we would... We would cherish the gift of a Corvette. Why would we cherish a Corvette and cheapen the cross? Is it not because we see one as valuable and the other one is not? Or in the least, one as more valuable than the other? Our sin, it insults the sacrifice made by Christ as the sin of Israel insulted the sacrifice by Gideon. But listen, the greatest insult to God that has ever been perpetuated was the murder of of his innocent son on the cross. And the greatest insult to Gideon was the murder and sacrifice of Israel by his innocent sons in an effort to choose a new king or leader for, themse for themselves who by his choice became what I would call cursed to wear the crown. And here's what Israel does in this text. They choose to align themselves with a usurper to the crown just like mankind has with Satan. It's really important to note here that Abimelech is not a judge. It's important to note that God didn't choose Abimelech. Israel did. God didn't anoint Abimelech. He announced himself. Abimelech is a usurper, right? He is attempting to defy God and take the crown by choice. And that changes the way we look at Abimelech. And sort of in a big picture sense, what it is that Abimelech is trying to point us towards. The judges are intended to point us to Jesus, the roles he will play, who he will be, what he will do. Abimelech is not a judge, and therefore he points us to Satan. Abimelech is the son of Gideon, but in so many ways he is the spawn of Satan. And just, just as Satan wanted God's throne and he launched a campaign to take it, Abimelech conspired to take the throne of Gideon. And just as Abimelech's plan led to the slaughter of the sons of Gideon, Satan's plan called for the death of God's son. Abimelech is a pawn in the plan of Satan. He has not progress in the plan of God to save his people. And just as Abimelech used craftiness and flattery to convince the men of Shechem to join him and his ploy for the throne, Satan, as the serpent, used cunning and influence and falsehoods to convince Adam and Eve to join him in his efforts to throw off these restraints of rule by God. The judges saved Israel from their enemies. Abimelech, taught Israel to see one another as enemies and to kill their own people. Abimelech conspires with his family. And he conspires with them to convince the men of his hometown to make him king 
because that would be what was most advantageous for them. He sort of proposes the question, would it be better that 70 sons of Gideon rule over you or would it be better that one of your own? I'm from Shechem. Would it be better that one of your own rule over you? Well, this decision is disastrous. This usurper to the crown becomes cursed and so will all who are aligning themselves with them. But the men of Shechem, they... They agree with Abimelech that this would be better for them, so they contract killers for a piece of silver per son of Gideon. Gideon, they massacre them in a mass murder scene. If you're the kind of person who is always looking for holes in the Bible, Gideon had 70 sons. It said all 70 died, but one escaped. They're talking about when they say 70 died from the perspective of Abimelech. He thought he got them all, right? When he realizes that this one son... Uh, this one son, Jotham, he alone escapes. And when he realizes that they are plotting and planning to make Abimelech king, he climbs to a spot where he can be seen and heard but not easily reached during the coronation ceremony. Like imagine they're getting ready to put the crown on Abimelech's head and he tells a parable. And the parable is about mighty majestic trees refusing to be king of the forest because they knew their place. Right? They knew their place. I'm a fig tree. I'm an olive tree. I do what an olive tree does. I do what a fig tree does. I am not meant to be king of the forest. They are content with their place. These, in the parable, represent Gideon and his sons. And at the end of the parable, a briar accepts the crown. But before he will accept the crown, he offers a prophetic curse, which illustrates the fact that he knows his kingship was not righteous and had come about by means that were not just and that this would wind up destroying and devastating both he and the ones who had conspired to make him king. Now, the point of all of this for Jotham speaking to the men of Shechem is to tell them, hey, the guy you just made king, if he was willing to murder his own brothers so ruthlessly to be king, why would he not do the same to you if his status was threatened? Do you really think that he'll let you slide because we're his kinfolk? He just murdered his brothers. The men of Shechem are delusional. They're dishonest with themselves if they think that the briar in the parable, Abimelech, won't prick them and make them bleed too. The thorns on a briar are its self-defense mechanism. Uh, they exist to protect the vine, a vine that knows it does not belong. Anybody garden? Anybody ever been in the woods? Anybody ever planted a briar bush on purpose? Right? It's out of place. It doesn't belong. Briars and thorns are the result of the fall. Read Genesis 3 where God tells Adam, hey, you're going to work really hard by the sweat of your brow and you're going to get a little bit of fruit from this point forward, but because of sin, what you're going to get now is a lot of thorns and thistles. They weren't there. They weren't a part of the original creation equation before sin. And they know their end is coming when Jesus returns. They know they don't belong in creation. And they also know that nobody wants them around. So they protect themselves. To grow, and so they grow thorns intended to make everybody think twice and be careful in your dealings with them. It's easy to see why Jotham, inspired by the Holy Spirit, chose to called Abimelech a briar, isn't it? Because he didn't belong. He didn't belong on the throne of Israel, but he didn't even belong in his own family. 
Yes, he is a son of Gideon, but he's the son of a prostitute, we're told. He's the half-brother that the rest of the family knows about but only sees at Thanksgiving and Christmas. So not only did Abimelech not belong on the throne of Israel, he didn't belong in his own family and he knows it. So he cuts down the rest of his family in a move of self-protection born out of deep insecurities and fears about his place in both his own family and the world. His insecurities, his fears are what drove him. And he played on the fears and insecurities of the men of Shechem. And they join him on what I would call the dark road to perdition. Now there's a whole lot, and I hope you'll hear me say this, and I can't point it out every single time because it's not necessarily the main point of every verse and text, but there's a whole lot in the book of Judges from this point forward that warns us out of, about tribalism and about acting out of fear that our place in the world and my group of people's place in the world might be lost. To live and act in fear that our place in the world might be lost is the way of the briar, it is the way of Satan, and it betrays the gospel. Christians, first of all, know this world is not all there is. Right? This world is not all there is. We also know that we have been promised that we shall inherit the earth when the Father fully gives it to the Son. So who cares if we lose our place and our position of priority and power in the world? Because of Christ, we can never, ever lose our place in God's eternal kingdom. We have a place and we know it already and it has been promised to us. And to behave as if that is not true is not living by faith but fear and it betrays the gospel. We call Christ a liar. We don't believe his promise. We call him a liar and we act like the briar when we seek to protect and preserve our place in the world at all costs, no matter who it hurts. Jotham's fable is a prophetic curse, but it's spoken, it's a curse, but it's spoken from an interesting place. It's actually spoken from a mountain that was dedicated to blessing. So let's talk a little bit about how this curse of sin can be used by God to lead us to this blessing of repentance. Jotham says to the men of Shechem, he says, Hey, if what's happened here is of God, then so be it. But if it's not, then may both Abimelech and his co-conspirators be consumed by fire. Now, it's interesting that he says fire because briars are of virtually no service to mankind except for the fact that they make great kindling. Right? Now, we'll get to that in just a minute. But I do want to note this. From a big picture sense, I think briars do serve God's purposes. First of all, they remind us of who we are. They remind us of what we have lost, and they remind us that we are lost. Briars are symbolic, you see, of man's struggle as flesh and blood with sin. Right? When I see a briar, what I see is we are fallen. This wasn't here at one point, and it's only here now because I'm a fallen sinner who is the son of Adam my first parent, who is a sinner. They serve as a reminder that we tried to be done with God once before. <laughs> we've tried this. We've been down this road before, mankind has, and we lost prosperity and paradise as a result. So when I look at the briar, what I see is that we are lost due to sin, and I see what we have lost due to our sin. But I hope that we also, when we see the briar and look at the thorns on a briar bush, we are hopefully reminded also of the one who wore a crown of thorns in our place 
to save and redeem human beings who wanted to be done with God, who wanted to sit on the throne, who wanted to wear the crown of who would rule them lives for them, who would rule their lives for themselves. And so the briar serves this purpose. It recalls for us what was lost, and it calls us to Christ in whom all who are lost and all that was lost will one day be restored. The briar also serves another purpose, I think, for mankind. They do make this terrific kindling and they fuel fires. You know, the reason for that is they don't belong. It doesn't, they don't belong in creation, so they burn up easily. They are not eternal. And one day God will, return, will refine the earth by fire. And when he does, everything that was not meant to last, everything that's not eternal will turn to ash in the refining fire of God and the briar bush will be among that. Another stroke of genius here about Jotham's prophetic curse that tells us really that God is the source of this curse is the location from which he speaks on Mount Gerizim. Uh, to sort of give you a little background into why that matters, the book of Deuteronomy, kind of have to go back a little bit, the book of Deuteronomy is essentially the farewell speech of Moses. Israel is on the precipice of this land of Canaan, the promised land after decades of wandering the desert. And Moses tells them very simply, hey, if you will do what God says, good times and blessings will roll. But if you don't, curses will haunt and follow you all the days of your life. And to entrench this obedience, you know, blessing for obedience, curse for disobedience sort of thing into their psyche, he has them participate in a special ceremony that really probably nobody would ever forget. He has half the tribes go to Mount Ebal and the other half go to Mount Gerizim. And the half on Mount Ebal are to read off curses on Israel for disobedience. The half on Mount Gerizim read off overflowing abundant blessings that would come to Israel if they were obedient and faithful. Let's just read a little bit of this. Deuteronomy chapter 11 verses 26 through 29. See, this is Moses speaking to Israel. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I commanded you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. The blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Joth Jotham stood on the wrong mountain. If he wanted to curse Israel, curse the men of Shechem, he should have stood on Mount Ebal, but he stood rather on Gerizim. This is the place from which to proclaim God's blessing. I don't think this is an accident. And I certainly don't think it's the result of absent-mindedness. I think it was meant to assault and awaken Israel to who and what they have become. This place, the land of Canaan, and God's special people who were intended to know and live in and swim around in the deep blessings of God have now become a cursed people living in a cursed land. The people who were supposed to be blessed and the land that is supposed to be blessed has now become a cursed people and a cursed land, Right? Jotham also, I think, stands on Mount Gerizim for another reason. He curses Israel in an effort to show them not just what they have become, but I think he stands on Mount Gerizim to remind them that blessings are still available if they will simply repent and come back to God, right? And I think this is a great place to sort of begin to wrap up our day and note that cursed people can come out from under the curse. And these cursed people can become blessed people because Jesus became the curse for us. By their actions, by the actions of the people of Israel rejecting uh, Gideon and aligning themselves with a usurper, 
The nation of Israel has come under a curse. They were never intended to be a cursed people. Israel was always intended to be a blessed land and a blessed people. Well, humanity was meant to know nothing but the blessing of God. Right? Fellowship, friendship with God. Enjoy His presence. This is what we were intended to know. But we, just like Israel, when they align themselves with a usurper, we have aligned ourselves with a usurper, Satan. And because of that, just like Israel, we have forfeited the blessing and instead have come under a curse due to our sin. But here's the good news. Cursed people can come out from underneath the curse and become blessed people if they will repent. This is how Jotham points us to Jesus. And he points us to Jesus because it is Jesus who makes it so that we can come out from underneath the curse of sin because he became a curse for us. This is a powerful section of scripture here. Galatians chapter 3 verses 13 and 14 where Paul writes, and I'm going to stop and kind of ask some questions along the way to kind of help you see the fullness of the verse. Paul writes in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do that? How did he redeem us from the curse of the law? By becoming a curse for us. Well, how and when did Christ become a curse for us? Or maybe better put, become a curse for us. It was when he hung on the cross. For it was written, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Right? That's when he became the curse for us, when he hung on the tree. So what is the result of this uh, Christ becoming cursed for us? Well, we get to move from living on the mountain of curses to living on the mountain of blessing. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Right? He became a curse for us. We were cursed. He became a curse for us. And the result of that is we get to receive the blessing. Right? The promises that God made to Abraham. We become part of God's covenantal people so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, this is really important to note. There's a little catchy phrase, right? Reverse the curse. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. You can't reverse curses. Curses, especially the biblical kind, must be paid in full. Right? There's no reversing the curse. The curse must be paid in full. You can't escape a curse. Tell my wife all the time, you know, she says, you're just so good looking. I just say, hey, I'm just, I'm just cursed. You know what I mean? This is just, I can't help it, right? I got to pay the penalty. You know what I mean? <laughs> you got to stop, babe. That makes people think you don't really think I'm good looking if you just laugh at it. <laughs> Listen, my point is this. Curses, they can't be escaped. They must be paid. Well, what is our curse as sinners? Death. We, we've got to pay. That penalty has to be paid. Death. And biblically, death means to live both. It certainly means physical death, but it mainly means to live both now and forever separated from God. And you know, Jotham, he speaks this prophetic curse. Well, God spoke one as well in Genesis 2.17 when he told Adam and Eve that the moment that they disobeyed them, they and all their future offspring would become cursed and would experience death. Paul says in Romans 6.23 that the wages, in other words, what we have earned with our sin is death. And, and death here again means to be separated from one another because that's what death does. That's what death does. It separates beings from one another. And this is what death means in the biblical sense. It means to experience separation from God. A person doesn't even have to be dead yet for them to be dead to you. 
Right? You ever heard somebody say that? You're dead to me. When you say that, that means I intend to never speak or enter your presence ever again. I'm going to live my life as if you don't exist. Right? Well, sinners are dead to God. That's what we're born as. Alive to sin, but dead to God. And if they stay in their sin, they will remain dead and therefore remain separated from God forever. This is the curse that we live under as sinners. And this is the curse that Jesus took on the cross. He died on the cross, and as he hung there, there were seven phrases that Jesus spoke, and one of them was, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you could spend the rest of your life trying to understand how Jesus was one with God and yet at that moment was separated from him, right? I'll let the people with PhD sort that one out. But I know that the scriptures testify that it's true. And if Jesus really took our sin on his body and sin separates us from God, in those moments somehow Christ was one with God but separated from him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He became the curse for us as he lost the presence of the Father. Isaiah 53.10 says that it was the will of the Father to crush him for your sake, for mine. He chose to crush him. He was crushed because we are cursed. And he became the curse for us. We can come out from underneath this curse. Now, Sometimes when we present the gospel and we talk about what it means to be a Christian, we say, you know, I, I don't have to pay for my sins. Well, you don't, but your sins have to be paid for. Jesus paid that penalty. The curse is not just reversed. It's been paid and it is over. Jesus Christ bore our sin in his body on the tree. And listen to me as I wrap up. He hung there. He hung there as a cursed man would. Remember Galatians 3.13, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, right? He hung there as a cursed man would so that we can experience the joy and the presence of life with him like a blessed person should. The curse of sin will be paid, friends. Now, these are our options. Simple. I know you've been in church your whole life maybe. You've heard it 100,000 times before, but sin will be paid for either by you in hell or we can trust that Christ has already paid for it on the cross. At the end of the day, that's as simple as I can make the gospel, right? He paid for our sins, and your choice now is to decide whether or not you're determined, I'll take care of this debt on my own, or will I trust the gift of God that Christ has already taken care of it for me? And how is this supposed to help me if I'm already a Christian? Tomorrow when you get up, and the nonsense begins, and the anxiety sets in, and stress and depression and all the things that begin to nag at you come, preach the gospel to yourself and remind yourself that no matter what comes today, it cannot separate me from Jesus Christ. My debt has been paid. And ultimately, the most important thing I need as a human being, an eternal soul, has been taken care of forever. And I can rejoice in that even if I don't have anything else to rejoice in today. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the word, Lord in prayer. Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you in these moments and we ask simply that you would take your gospel, press it down deep into our hearts, 
and no longer let us live as if it's something that's just good for when we die, but it is essential to our lives as well. Thank you for paying the curse for us, and even thank you seems to fall so far short of what we ought to say, but we are limited by human language, and thank you in these moments is all that we can bring. So thank you for becoming the curse for us, for setting us free from the curse of sin, and I pray for the person in the room who lives life, and sometimes they feel like, man, I just feel like I'm cursed. Well, if they are still in their sins, they are, but they don't have to stay there. The mountain of curse can become the mountain of blessing if we will simply repent. Christ has made it possible for all sin to be forgiven. And I pray for the person in the room that's never experienced that, that you will convict them of sin and lead them to repentance and faith before it's eternally too late. For all of us in the room, may we rejoice because the thing that we need most is taken care of. Oh, may we rejoice and worship you for you are worthy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.